Hey everybody, thanks for joining in and being part of SCF Online. Um, I hope you've had a great week. And uh, if you're uh, new or newish to SCF Online, maybe this is your very first time joining in, I want to welcome you and thank you for meeting with us in this space. Uh, if you've been tracking with SCF Online for maybe some months, or maybe you go all the way back to the beginning, which is like, what, two and a half years or so, I just want you to know that you are so important to us. Uh, we think about you all the time, and we pray for you with regularity. And uh, we count it a, a privilege, really what we want to do in SCF Online. We want this to be a space where people and where we can help people know God and become like Jesus so that we can change our world. And, um, you know, we love to, we love to pray for you. And uh, if there are ways that we can pray for you specifically, we would count it an honor to do that. Uh, you can, you can reach out to us and let us know how we can, uh, pray with you, uh, ca. It'll take you to a simple form where you can let us know what your prayer uh, requests are. And uh, we've got teams of people that meet throughout the week to pray. And we would count it a real privilege to, uh, to, to help you, you know, carry um, those things that are on your heart to God in prayer. You're not alone. Uh, we'd love to, to partner with you in that. Well, for our teaching time today, um, we, um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And last week, we left off having just dipped our toes into Leviticus chapter 19. Now, if, if this is your first time joining with us today, you might be saying, oh my goodness, uh, why in the world are we in Leviticus chapter 19? Uh, well, we're in Leviticus 19 because we're in a teaching series. Actually, we're getting near the end of this series. This is part seven of eight, so we'll finish it off next week. But this is a series that we're calling Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And so um, we're going back to the Old Testament to look for Jesus. Now, that might spark a question from some to say, well, why go back to the Old Testament to try and find Jesus? Why not just go to the New Testament where he's really easy to find? And that would be a good question. I guess we're doing this really at the invitation of Jesus. Jesus is the one who um, invites us to go back into the Old Testament and to look for him and to find him. In fact, he teaches us to do that, to go back and to find him on every page. He says the whole thing points to him. The whole Old Testament is really all about him. In fact, here's what Jesus said to his disciples. This is the resurrected Jesus. And here's what he says to his disciples. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Notice where in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, in the Old Testament. Testament. And so we've been trying to do this these uh, last few weeks. So let me just take a moment and do a little bit of a recap of where we've been um, to this point in this series. So we went back into the Old Testament to look for Jesus. And so we said, well, let's start at the beginning. That's always a good place to start. And so we went back to Genesis chapter 
1 to the creation account, and we saw that Jesus is the living word of God that calls all things into existence, including us. He's the God of creation. Then we went to Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we saw that Jesus is the God of peace. We looked at Genesis 3.15, which is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And there we saw that Jesus, this one, the seed of the woman, would crush, defeat the enemy, Satan. And Jesus did that at the cross enabling us to have peace with God and peace with one another. But then Jesus invites us, the church, to partner with him in finishing off Satan. Yes, he was soundly defeated at the cross, but he continues to manipulate and to lie and to deceive. And so Jesus invites you and me, us, the church, uh, to finish Satan off, to finish the crushing. Uh, God wants to lift the foot of the church to finish the crushing of Satan. Um, and how does that happen? Practically speaking, it's as we pursue peace, Paul tells us in Romans. So as, as you and I pursue uh, reconciliation in our relationships, as you and I pursue forgiveness and mercy and grace, as we pursue peace, we uh, finish this crushing of Satan in a practical way by waging peace. So Jesus is the God of peace. Then, you know, then we ask the question, well, uh, the Old Testament seems to have a lot of violence in it. So how do we see Jesus in the midst of the violence? And we saw that Jesus is the, the God who stoops. We noted through the Old Testament that God has this pattern of, of stooping and accommodating people in their sinfulness, in their stubbornness. And we talked about some examples of that. We saw it with David. David was uh, stubbornly and insistent uh, on building a temple. God didn't want it, wasn't his plan, wasn't his heart, but God finally accommodated David in his stubborn insistence on a temple and he said, okay. And then God used the temple. Same thing with uh, Israel, the nation themselves were stubbornly, sinfully insistent that they wanted a human king. God didn't want that. It wasn't his heart. It wasn't his plan. God wanted to be their only king, but God accommodated the nation of Israel in their sinfulness. He accommodated them in that he stooped and, and accommodated them. He stepped into this fallen framework to stay in relationship with that nation so he could move them along in his redemptive plan. We saw that God did that with animal sacrifices. Uh, God, that, was a, that was God stooping and accommodating the nation of Israel because even before the law, Israel was sacrificing animals and it was bad. It was demonic even. And God said, okay, since you're kind of bent on doing this, let's put some parameters around this and let's have it pointing somewhere. Animal sacrifice was never God's heart, but it was an accommodation that he made and that, and that he used. And the same thing with violence. This, this nation of Israel was a violent, warring nation. And God stooped and stepped and accommodated that so that he could stay in relationship and move them along in his redemptive plan. We see God stooping, accommodating all through the Old Testament. And we can see Jesus in that because Jesus, man, he's the God who stoops. Think of Jesus who left the glory of heaven, stooped, stepped into this fallen human framework out of love for us, came, born into poverty, uh, came uh, a servant, not being served, but, but serving. And he, uh, man, point blank, told us how to live, 
but he didn't just tell us how to live. He showed us how to live. He showed us the beauty of sacrificial love. It took him all the way to the cross where he gave his life uh, for us. And God raised him from the dead, validating that every single thing that Jesus said is absolutely true. Jesus is the God who stoops. And then we uh, looked uh, at uh, finding Jesus in the Psalms. And we looked at Psalm 22, which is a Psalm of David, but we could see Jesus in there. Uh, Psalm 22, David starts off saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very same words that Jesus himself expresses from the cross. Was David actually forsaken by God? No. Did he feel forsaken by God at that moment? Yeah, he did. Was Jesus actually forsaken by God when he was on the cross? No. Did he feel forsaken by God in that moment? Yeah, he did. And here's the cool thing. When we pray to Jesus, we pray to a God who knows what it feels like to feel forsaken. There's something powerful about that. Praying to a savior who can say to you and can say to me, I know how you feel. Man, that's beautiful and that's powerful. Jesus is the God who feels. Then we looked at, uh, what, is it, what, what does it mean to, to look for Jesus in the... Uh, in the prophets. And so we looked at the book of Zechariah, a few places there. We looked at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, and we saw that Jesus is the God who reveals. He reveals himself to us even hundreds of years before his birth. In fact, we look at Isaiah 53. What an amazing chapter. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, we can look there and see Jesus revealed his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Um, uh, details about the cross, deep theological implications for you and for me. We can see the gospel in Isaiah 53, 700 years in advance. Jesus is the God who reveals. And so uh, last week we introduced this idea that Jesus is the God of principles. And it is here that we started to stick our toes in the Levitical law because Jesus invites us to go back to the law of Moses, the writings of Moses, and to find him there. And so this is Jesus, the God of principles. Well, why do we say that? Well, Jesus himself said, don't think for a second that I have come to abolish the law. I haven't. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. And Jesus said the law will be fulfilled. Every dot, every dash, every tiny stroke of the pen, it'll all be fulfilled when everything is accomplished. And when was everything accomplished? Well, that's exactly what Jesus said from the cross. It is finished. It is accomplished. So what Jesus has done on the cross has freed us from the letter of the law. The hymn writer said, free from the law, oh, happy condition. And I say amen to that. You and I are freed from the letter of the law. We're freed to follow Jesus. But Jesus still invites us back to the law to find him. But we're not looking in the letter of the law. We're freed from that. Where we do find him is in the principles that are embedded in the precepts. We're looking for principles that are embedded in the precepts. We're free from the letter of the law. The law itself, the precepts themselves are embedded in a culture and are time bound. But the principles that are embedded in those precepts are timeless and transcendent. And it's in those principles 
that we can see the heart of Jesus. And whenever we see the heart of Jesus, it helps us to follow him better. And so uh, for, for a, an example, we last week looked at Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Uh, which says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Um, do we have to obey this law today? Well, no, because we are freed from the letter of the law. But is there a principle that is embedded in these precepts, and I think there is. You see, in these days, in the days of, of uh, Old Covenant law in Israel, the poor were kind of pushed out to the, uh, to the rural areas. And so the poor would walk the rural roads and uh, they would be able to wander off the road and into your field if you're a farmer. And even if you've harvested your field, you've left, uh, uh, you've left some unharvested crop at the edge of your field for the poor so they can go in and eat. And so what's the principle here? Well, you know, the principle embedded in the precept, that's what we're looking for. And I think there's a principle here, take care of the poor, whether you're a farmer or not. This is the principle, take care of the poor. In this, in this principle, we see the heart of Jesus. In fact, we could even say it more broadly than just the poor. Certainly in this Old Covenant context in Israel, the poor were kind of pushed out to the margins, but really in our day, even though, you know, now the poor, the homeless don't tend to be in rural areas. They tend to be in more urban settings, towns and cities and so on. But it's in a sense, they're still pushed out to the margins. They're marginalized. And the heart of Jesus is with those who are marginalized, not just the poor, not just those who are experiencing food insecurity, but there are others who are marginalized. There are people who are experiencing injustice, people who are experiencing um, prejudice, people who are experiencing racism. Um, and the heart of Jesus is with all of these who are on the margins. Next week, spoiler alert, Pastor Dave is going to read from Matthew chapter 25. And in that chapter, we see the heart of Jesus for those on the margins. And specifically, um, I think there's six things in that chapter where we can see the heart of Jesus for the thirsty, for the hungry, for the naked, for the prisoner, for the sick and for the immigrant. You know, Jesus heart is with all of those who are kind of pushed to the margins, who are marginalized. And so... You know, there's an example of we're free from the letter of the law, but there's a principle here that is transferable, right? And it's in that principle that we can see the heart of Jesus take care of the poor, really take care of those who are marginalized. You know, fight for justice for those who are experiencing injustice. Be a voice for those who don't have a voice. This is, this is the heart of Jesus. And so as you think about, um, you know, as we look at other places in Leviticus chapter 19, there's other laws. And some of them, it's like drop dead simple to see the principle here and to see Jesus in it. For instance, this, this is uh, Leviticus 19 verse 18. 
Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Not too hard to see a principle of love. It's not very hard to see Jesus here. That could, it, it's almost like we're reading from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the principle of love. Super simple to see. But then you go to the next verse, which is verse 19, and it's maybe a little bit more um, Maybe a little bit more difficult, requires a little bit more imagination on our part. Keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Okay, what's the principle embedded in the precept? And how do we see Jesus in there? Well, I don't know anything about breeding animals. Uh, I don't know anything about planting crops. The only seeds I've ever planted in my life is grass seed on my lawn. Yeah, I do wear clothing. Uh, you're welcome, by the way. Do not wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material. Um, you know, there may have been a time in history where people wore um, clothing of like pure wool or pure cotton or pure leather. But really, I think mostly what we wear today is some kind of a blend. I'm sure whatever it is I'm wearing is some kind of a blend. If you're kind of double jointed, you could maybe look around at the tag at the back and see if there's um, some kind of a blend thing that you're wearing. Maybe you're watching today with somebody. You could like to look at the, the tag on their shirt and they could look at yours. Maybe you could even just report in the chat uh, if you're wearing any kind of a blended material, that way we'll know who to stone uh, after the uh, service. Uh, just, just, just kidding. Actually, all three of these are applicable. And I think there is a principle that is embedded in these precepts, a principle in which we can see the heart of Jesus. And I think the principle is this, don't blend. Don't blend. Don't blend with the culture. If you remember last week, we looked at verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 19. Let's just go back there just for two seconds. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, this gives kind of the context for this whole chapter that we're sticking our toe in. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holiness. This really is the context for the laws that we're reading in Leviticus 19. The context is holiness. And so God says to Moses, tell the people to be holy. Holiness means to be set apart for a specific purpose, for a special purpose. It's a called outness. You're set apart for a specific purpose. So Moses, God says, Moses, tell the people not to blend too much with the culture, because if they blend too much with the culture, they're going to lose their ability to fulfill their special purpose. So be holy be set apart, be different. And then with these laws, uh, you know, about animals and seed and material, you know, it, it gets baked right into their culture. So they'd be reminded of this call to holiness every time they, you know, farmers would, in, would, would breed uh, uh, their animals or plant seed, or even when they got dressed in the morning, they'd be reminded that we're called to be holy. We're called to be different. We're called not to blend with the culture. So I think there's a principle there. Don't blend with the culture. And I think we can see Jesus in that. And let me clarify, um, don't, 
don't blend with the culture, but we do need to connect with the culture. Jesus has called us as followers. He's called us to be ambassadors of a different kingdom, his kingdom. So my, you know, if I had my passport here, I could show it to you and it would say that I'm a Canadian citizen. And I am. I love Canada. I love being Canadian. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. My citizenship, my passport says, is that I'm Canadian. But what Jesus tells me is that my citizenship is actually the kingdom of heaven. And that I'm actually an ambassador of Jesus to Canada. I'm an ambassador to Canada. My citizenship is in heaven. I'm an ambassador to Canada. I'm a missionary to the culture. And so are you if you're a follower of Jesus. Think about that for a second. A missionary to the culture. Think about missionaries. Think about a missionary who goes cross-culturally to another people group. What do they do? Well, they want to connect with that culture. They don't, they don't get mad at the culture. They don't complain about the culture. They don't protest the culture. They don't withdraw from the culture. No, they, they want to connect with that culture. They want to learn that culture. They want to understand that culture. They want to engage with people in that culture. They want to show love to that culture. They want to build friendships in that culture. They want to build bridges to be able to, uh, to relate and connect with people in that culture. That's what missionaries do. And Jesus calls us to be his ambassadors, ambassadors of his kingdom to the country that we're living in. And maybe you're not in Canada, maybe you're in the States or somewhere else. You're an ambassador to the country that you find yourself in. And we're all missionaries to the culture. That requires us to connect, right? So we don't want to blend. We don't want our holiness, our called outness to be watered down because we're blending. No, but we do want to connect. We want to connect with our culture. And so I think in that principle, we can see Jesus in that, particularly as we think about the kingdom teachings of Jesus. Uh, here's another one. Skip down to verse uh, 26. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. Um, okay, what's the deal with this kosher business of not eating any food with blood? Uh, well, what we, uh, what we find is in the pagan nations surrounding Israel, there was this belief, this understanding, and you can, you can understand why they would believe this, but there was this belief that the blood was seen as having the life force of the animal still in it. So that when you ate a nice, um, rare steak, that you were actually um, almost like you were ingesting the life force of that animal and it was enhancing your own energy and your own life force and and you're kind of uh, ingesting the, the the capabilities and the capacities of that animal and there was a belief in these uh, surrounding nations that when you ate that animal when you ate different organs different organs would give you different kinds of life force different kinds of energy and of course the blood that was the thing that kind of flowed through and made everything function and so they wanted blood in their meat. In fact, in some of these surrounding nations around Israel, they would have specific um, pagan rituals and ceremonies where they would literally drink the blood of animals, which is uh, very gross. And sometimes even in, in certain instances, it would be the blood of humans. 
And the belief was that, um, man, you can kind of suck the life force, the life energy from the things around you into yourself. And God says, no, no, none of that. God says, when it comes to spiritual life force, my life force is all that you need, God says. And so this is like God saying, hey, there's no way you're going to be tempted to blend. There's that thing of blending. There's no way you're going to be tempted to blend your commitment with me with some kind of magical manipulation where you're trying to get life force from the things around you. No, I'm enough. And you think about, you know, you think about this principle that Jesus is enough. Jesus says, my blood is enough for you. You don't need to go anywhere else. I'm all that you need. I'm all that you need for life, for full life, life to the full. I'm all you need, Jesus plus nothing. So I think, you know, we can see that principle there, the sufficiency of of Jesus. His blood is enough. Well, let's look at just a few more verses. This is, uh, this is verse 27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. We're not going to talk about all of these, but just, you know, let your mind start thinking about, okay, what's, what's the principle embedded in the precept and how can I see Jesus in that? Um, do not cut your bodies. This is the next verse, verse 28. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. I want to talk about that tattoo thing for a minute. We'll, we'll practice this principle thing there, but let me just, let me just let me just say a couple of things here that really aren't part of the, of the talk, but I think are important. Um, I have heard pastors, I, and I would say, I, I think I've maybe even been guilty of this before, but I've certainly heard other pastors do this, kind of a cherry picking of Old Testament law. That sometimes, and I've heard this in sermons where pastors would kind of cherry pick from the law when it kind of benefits the case that they're trying to make. And so they'll cherry pick, pull something out and, and uh, say, here, look at this. And this is why I want you to do this or, 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 or whatever. And um, they do that with no explanation that, hey, this law this Old Testament law was originally given to one nation, the nation of Israel, not to us. But even now that we are spiritual Israel through what Jesus has done on the cross, the fact that Jesus gave his life on the cross has freed us from the letter of the law. And sometimes there's no mention of that by pastors or certain teachers who are trying to just kind of use this to make a case. Like, imagine, imagine a... Um, you know, a pastor preaching a sermon, and I've heard this actually, a pastor who was really against tattoos, didn't like tattoos at all. So went here to Leviticus 19, pulls this verse out and says, see, you shouldn't have tattoos. Uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, um, and, and here you go. But imagine if that same pastor had a, say a 16 year old son, um, that pastor's probably not gonna show his son, verse 27, because that pastor probably wants his son to get a haircut, but he doesn't want to have him get a tattoo. So he is going to show him verse 28, right? See the, the cherry picking there. We're free from the letter of the law. We're free from the letter of the law. It is really bad Bible. It's bad hermeneutics to cherry pick. 
And it can become unethical and manipulative and guilt-inducing and controlling and dare I say even cultish, uh, let us uh, with all that we have resist the urge to want to cherry pick from here. We're free from the letter of the law. What we do want to find are the principles embedded in the precepts that can help us follow Jesus. So what about this tattoo thing? Well, um, Israel, again, Israel's neighbors, their pagan neighbors uh, surrounding Israel were tattooing for the dead. This is about cutting your bodies for the dead or putting tattoo marks on yourselves for the dead. So the pagan nations around Israel would tattoo themselves with like memorials for the dead, thinking almost like with the animals that the dead can help me, that, I, that they can um, give me energy and, and, and all of these things. And you can pray to the dead and they'll assist you somehow and help you. And God says, don't participate in that. No. You know, so are we bound by the letter of the law? No. So if you've got tattoos, no worries. Uh, if you want to get a tattoo, go for it. I happen not to have any tattoos, but it's not because I'm any, in any way against them. Uh, there's probably three reasons why I don't have a tattoo. I'm a little bit cheap. I don't like pain. And the third, like, I have no idea what I would get uh, as a tattoo. But if I ever become not cheap and where I can, you know, willingly tolerate pain, then, you know, maybe I'll get a tattoo. Um, we're not bound by the letter of the law, but there is a principle here. And the principle I think is this, do not turn to any force that distracts you from the sufficiency and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Don't become distracted by any other force that will distract you from the preeminence and sufficiency of Jesus. Well, there's a bunch of other verses that we could look at in Leviticus 19, but I hope that gives us kind of a, a sense as to um, how it is that we want to look for principles embedded in the precepts. Because when we understand the principles, we can see Jesus there. And when we see Jesus, when we see the heart of Jesus, we can follow him better. Here at SCF Online, we say we want to become like Jesus more and more and more. Well, that becomes more and more possible the more and more we see and understand his beautiful heart. Um, I want to take a moment and um, I want to notice from the New Testament how it is that Jesus actually is the one who encourages this process that we've been engaged in, all right, of going back to the law and looking for the principles that are embedded in the precepts, kind of seeing what's underneath the whole thing. Jesus is the one who teaches us to do that. So I want us just to see that clearly today. And we can see that in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is a, is a really great passage. In fact, in Matthew 12, we see Jesus doing exactly what we were just reading about in Leviticus 19. Jesus and his disciples are in the rural areas. They are the poor. They're traveling the rural roads. They get hungry, and so they wander off the road into a field where a farmer has left uh, some unharvested crop at the edge of the field. And so Jesus and his disciples go into this grain field, and they begin to pick some grain and eat it. But there's a problem. It's the Sabbath. And the law, the letter of the law, 
clearly says, do not do any work on the Sabbath. And isn't harvesting grain, even by hand, even if you're hungry, isn't that work? Well, the Pharisees come along. And of course, they were always kind of watching, right? Looking for an opportunity to point their bony fingers. And uh, they say, they, they confront Jesus and say, hey, your disciples are violating uh, the law. They're uh, working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus responds to the Pharisees and we get a chance to kind of just like be a fly on the wall in this uh, moment that Jesus has in conversation with the Pharisees. And we see this in Matthew chapter 12. And, and here's uh, what that looks like. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said, to, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So Jesus tells this story about King David. Actually, he wasn't king yet at this point. He'd, he had been anointed king, but he hadn't taken the throne yet. And uh, uh, David and his men are being chased by Saul and his men. And David and his guys are on the run. And they run to the tabernacle. And they hide there with the priests. But David and his men are hungry. And uh, there's no food in the tabernacle. The only food that's there is the food that is for the priests to eat. And it's called the showbread or the consecrated bread. But the Old Covenant law explicitly says that that showbread, that consecrated bread, is only to be eaten by the priest. No one else other than the priest can eat that bread. And so David says to the priests, uh, we're hungry. We're on the run. I've been anointed king. And I think I know what the heart of God is. Um, I think he'd want us to eat the bread. And the priests go, what are you talking about the heart of God? It's not a heart thing. It's, it's, it's a thing of clarity, what the law says. And the law explicitly says nobody other than priests can eat this bread. Nobody unless you're a priest. And David says, yeah, I know there's a law. But I also know that the law was motivated by love. And I think I know what God's heart of love would say in this instance. He'd say, eat the bread. And so David and his men ate the showbread. And you know what? God didn't give him heck. God actually gave him a thumbs up. And so here's Jesus telling the Pharisees, you know, that even David in the old covenant knew how to interpret the law through the lens of love that underneath the whole thing, man, is the heart of God's love. Here's how the rest of this conversation went. Jesus says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath on Sabbath duty in the temple, desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. And so Jesus says, you know, okay, Pharisees, since we're on the topic of law, have you noticed that when you try to live out the law, according to the letter of the law, you can't do it because it's contradictory. The law itself is contradictory. It's self-contradictory. You can't do it. And then Jesus gives this example. He says, you know, it's, it's in the law clearly that there is to be no work done on the Sabbath. That was, that was a law for all of Israel. But then contradictory to that, God says, okay, priests work on the Sabbath. And so the priests are like, well, aren't we Israel too? 
Or are we somehow not Israel? Because all of Israel is not to work on the Sabbath. And now you're asking us to work on the Sabbath. And we don't want to work on the Sabbath and get stoned because we're doing that. What's, you know, what is the deal? Well, God goes, or Jesus goes on here with the Pharisees and says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, hey guys, you can't, you can't live by the letter of the law and make it work. It's self-contradictory. You'd be way better off, guys, just looking at me and following me. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the whole system. In fact, I'm actually the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Let's, I just want to look at a couple more verses quickly, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. This is um, Romans 10, verse 4. Notice what Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We simply trust in Jesus. We receive his grace as a free gift. This is the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. The former regulation, that's the Levitical law, is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. In other words, the letter of the law was powerless to change human hearts. But here's a better hope, the author says, a better hope introduced. This is Christ by which we draw near to God. Here's Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Paul says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the law was like a guardian, like a tutor, like a nanny, like, like a guardian who holds the hand of a child, walking that child to their real mom and dad, right? And now that handoff has taken place and we're, we're holding uh, the hand of Jesus and it's Jesus who's leading us and Jesus who, who uh, fulfilled the law. What I want us to kind of take away this morning as we uh, wrap this thing up today, I want us to, to really grab onto the fact that love is at the core of the whole thing. Love is at the core of the whole Old Testament law that, that really underneath that, and Jesus helps us to see this, is, is the heart of God's love. Now, I know we can look at various places in the law and, and see certain circumstances and certain people and characters and whatnot, and it can be like, what? This is just insane. How do I... What possibly could the principle be here? And how can I possibly see Jesus in this? You know, we're going to do this imperfectly because we're imperfect people. We're not always going to kind of get it. But I think generally speaking, this is generally true. If, you know, we'll get a whole lot more out of the Old Testament if we learn to look at it and to read it the way that Jesus teaches us to, to see that the whole thing is pointing to him. And when we read the Old Testament the way Jesus teaches us to, we're going we're gonna to be less violent. We're going to be less judgmental. We're going to be less legalistic when we read the way that Jesus teaches us to. You know, I'm always concerned. I'm always concerned when I meet uh, men and women who've been around the kingdom a long time. And I'm concerned when I see 
what seems to me like the older they get, the crankier they get. The older they get, the more judgmental they get. The older they get, the less kind they become. The older they get, the more withdrawn they become. The older they get, the more divisive they become. And it concerns me. I'm concerned that something has distracted them away from the clarity of simply following Jesus. Because to follow Jesus is to follow the way of love. One last verse. This is Romans 13, 8 to 10. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. Pay your bills, pay your debts. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. That's a debt that'll never be paid. So loving others isn't um, optional. It's, it's an obligation. It's a debt that we will always owe. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Man, we could say a lot about those verses, but... Uh, uh, we'll save that for another day, but let's just grab onto that phrase. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That's the emphasis. And, you know, for, for us here uh, in the new covenant, you know, we're freed from the letter of the law. Paul says the law kills, but the spirit gives life. We have something, you know, we, we've got something that the typical Old Testament saint didn't. We've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the pneuma, the wind of God. We've got the Holy Spirit who's constantly blowing us in the direction of Christ, constantly guiding us in the way of Jesus, which is the way of love. And so I want us to see today that Jesus is the God of love. And so as we just um, end here, I want us to think about this. Letting love lead our choices. Letting love lead our choices. You say, well, what, is, what does that really mean? Well, in every decision you make, especially the tough ones, ask the question, what does love look like in this situation? We've all got decisions that we make every day. Some of them are really simple. You know, we get up in the morning. What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to wear? We go shopping. Am I going to buy uh, one for six or two for 10? Uh, you know, simple decisions like that. But then there's other decisions that are big and hard and difficult. And, and what does it look like? You know, what, is, what does love look like in the process of making that decision? Um, and some of you are, you know, maybe facing some big decisions, difficult decisions, financial decisions, uh, vocational decisions, relational decisions, locational decisions, big decisions. What, is, what does love look like uh, in those situations? Asking and answering this question. What does love look like in this situation? Will help you make the Jesus-directed decision. Let's, friends, let's, let's elevate love as the highest priority because the way of love is indeed the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've looked into the word and we've seen
your heart. And we hear your call to love. Love is um, both the means to the end and the end itself. And so, Holy Spirit, wind of God, would you gently blow us in the direction of Jesus, guide us in the way of Jesus, which is the way of love. And would you motivate and inspire us as to how to let love lead our choices so that we can be making decisions that are Jesus-directed decisions. I thank you so much for our SCF Online family, each one so precious to you, each one of unsurpassable worth made in your image and likeness and worth you, Jesus, giving your life for. And so, our Father, we want you to know we love you, and we want to know you more and more and more. And we want to become like Jesus more and more and more so that we can change our world more and more. Amen. See you next time.